Amen, amen. The first text I'm going to actually have you look at with me is going to be 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 2 through 5. And actually, we can start at 2 Timothy just chapter 4, verse uh, 1 through 5. This is kind of a pointer text to build upon what we're going to deal with. Uh, this is what the Apostle Paul says to Timothy. Now, the way you want to capture this is because this is what is called a pastoral epistle. And what this is, is an epistle by one evangelist to another evangelist who happens to be pastors. Can you shut that door? Uh, yeah, he got it. Jonas got it. Yeah, keep the door shut because we're not warm yet. So these are our country folks that's coming in, leaving the doors open. We love them. Um, I want you to think through with me that the role of the believer is ultimately to be evangelical. So the term is legitimate. Euangelion is a Greek term. It's a legitimate term. It means to be one who heralds good news, okay? Euangelion is a, is a compound term. It's Latin. It comes from the Greek. And therefore, Espanol will get it. Euo means good. Euo means good, like eulogy, good words. And then angelos. Angelos is the Greek term for angel, but an angel is nothing more than a what? Messenger. So when we use the term angelos in its noun form, the message, and euo, we're talking about the good message, That's what the gospel is, the good message. And so people who know God and understand the gospel are advised and commanded by Jesus to share the good message, are we not? It's not not an option. It's what we're called to do. But what I want to convince you of is that to be uh, evangelical is simply to be a grown-up Christian. This is the way I've framed it for years, and I want you to capture it, because I don't want you thinking, those of you who are new with us, I don't want you thinking evangelism is a pedantic mandate that's just to be executed in a kind of physical check-off-the-box. I went out and did some evangelism today, so my job is done. Evangelism should be intrinsic to who we are as the people of God because the gospel should be central to our essence and our expression and our life. The gospel should be central to it. What that means is as you are drawing near to God through Christ and that gospel is impacting you, it should naturally have a replicating effect on others over time because you and I are his witnesses. Did that make some sense? So I do want this to lock in this way. If you have grown up in a church community where evangelism was a mandate on a pragmatic level, on an official level, versus it being simply an intrinsic quality to who you are, you were shortchanged in understanding what the evangel is, okay? You cannot help but be evangelical when the gospel is properly understood and it is inculcated in your life. It becomes part of your identity. It's natural to you when God opens the door to share the message of Christ with people. That makes sense, right? And therefore, I've taught you this before, and this is Matthew 28, 19 and 20. You can pull that up just because people need to see the verse. When Jesus rose again from the dead, he gave that mandate to go into all the world and do what? preach the gospel. To preach the gospel is to euangelion. Now notice what he says there. Just notice it again. He says, go therefore and teach all what? Well, we're getting ready to talk about that here. Go therefore and teach all nations, 
baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. Of course, we're getting ready to teach that on Wednesday because of baptisms coming up. The verb in our text here is not go. The verb in our text is teach. Go is an adverb, okay? Just a construction issue. This is why you got to know Greek grammar to really know. As you therefore go, teach. The imperative is teach. Did that make some sense? Right. So if I, if I did the construction this way, I'm sorry, I just have to teach. If I did the construction this way, as you are going, I'm expressing an indicative, not an imperative. When I go, as you therefore go, I am making the assumption that you're not a totem pole. You're a real human being and you're going about life. As you go about life, look for the opportunity to do what? Teach. Because the gospel is something that has to be explained. This is what Paul is about to teach in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 1 through 4. Listen to it. And then we'll go in. Listen to it. Here's what he says. I charge you, therefore, before God... And the Lord Jesus Christ, who shall judge the living and the dead at his appearing and his kingdom. That's a theological uh, doctrine that teaches that ultimately there's a day where we're going to all stand before God. You guys know that theology is called eschatology, leading to the final crisis or the bema seat where every one of us will stand before God. The language is clear. Every man shall stand before God and give an account to God of what he has done in his body, whether good or bad. That is an explicit statement of biblical doctrine. We all got to meet our maker. That's the way we put it in our normal vernacular. That being the case, if we all have to meet our maker one day, verse two, preach the word. Do you see it? Preach the word, be instant in season, out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort with all long suffering and what? Right. This is what this is what Paul is telling Timothy, who was a young protege, to do. Now, notice what he goes on to say. Verse three, for the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. Are we in that day? But after their own lust, shall they heap up to themselves teachers having itchy ears? And this is what Pilgrim got in trouble with. Did he not? All right, let's keep going. Verse four, and they shall turn away their ears from the truth and shall be turned to fables. Was not worldly wise man a fabulist? All right, notice what he says here. But watch thou, yeah, there we go. But watch thou in all things. So now notice what Paul is telling Timothy to do. He's telling Timothy to be discerning. And that's what all Christians have to be. But watch thou in all things. Timothy, you got to be careful of your surroundings. Like you don't live in heaven. You live on earth. On earth are a bunch of people who are unprincipled, uncouth, and dangerous. And here's the other reason, Timothy. Real Christians are in danger in the world. Timothy, watch yourself. Watch yourself. Endure afflictions and do the work of what? of an evangelist. Make full proof of your ministry. I'm going to stop right there so we can begin to work through something around the idea of uh, evangelism or the euangelion. Do the work of an evangelist is what Paul is telling Timothy to do. And in our study of the Pilgrim's Progress, we've already seen evangelists earlier because evangelists shared the gospel with Pilgrim, did he not? And it's what sent Pilgrim on his way. So Pilgrim is walking down the road headed toward the wicked gate, but he gets into a bunch of trouble. 
Now, for those of you that are keeping up with me, what you don't get with the Pilgrim Progress is the sensibility of time. And that's because Bunyan is not trying to teach you mechanisms of salvation. He's not trying to teach you um, categories and sequences of events in a strict sort of methodological way. Because he knows also that Christians love to package doctrine and then force it on people as if everything has to be the same for everybody all the time. Did that make some sense? All right, so let me drill down into that a little bit more because we're talking about narrative theology. When you get narrative theology like an allegory with Pilgrim's Progress, the main and salient points of theology are to be highlighted, but they must have room to fit everyone individually. The main theological points have to be highlighted. They can be sequential, but let's say from the time that Pilgrim was disturbed about living in the city of destruction and then became burdened enough to want to leave and find his way to the celestial city, the journey from his home where he struggled with having to leave his wife and kids for a while and then bump into evangelists, you and I don't really know how long that was. We don't know how long it was before him and obstinate and pliable began their journey and then separated uh, pliable and, and, and pilgrim from obstinate. We don't know if that wasn't three friends who hung out for two years. We don't know that. And, and, and what we don't know is as important as what we know. You guys follow what I'm saying? What that means is, let's say everything up to where we are, where, where pilgrim, who is, you know, called Christian, and we'll deal with the distinction between pilgrim and Christian tonight, Let's say all of everything that's leading him up to meeting the preacher for the second time all happened in a week. Where, you know, he met the preacher last Sunday. On Monday, he made his journey. On Tuesday, him and Obstinate and Pliable get to walking. Uh, Obstinate says, nah, I don't think I want to go. Him and Pliable are walking till Wednesday and Thursday. By Friday, he's in the pit. On Saturday, he's on his way to Mount Sinai. And before he gets there, Evangelist shows up again and says, hey, from last Sunday to what will be Sunday tomorrow, you have gone astray. Stay with me. Stay with me. Now that can happen. That can happen that a person's timeline of coming to a place of confirmation of the gospel can be squeezed down to a short period of time, but it doesn't necessarily happen that way. Does that make sense? You worried about my shoestrings? Please. But pray for me, because I, you know, I, in African culture, we don't even wear shoes. I just do this for people out in this. I don't wear shoes in any event. What you have to do with narrative theology is make sure you have room to stretch it out so that it's reasonable and applicable to yourself as well as other people. Never take your own theological experience and put it in a square box and give it to anyone else. Make sure it fits within the parameters of scripture, but understand that God works with all his sheep differently. Okay. otherwise you will actually become a legalist and force upon people something that God didn't mandate for them, though he may have mandated it for you. 
you know, we have a tendency to do that. All right. So I'm just saying that because it's so important. Now, listen to what the text says here. Watch in all things, endure affliction, do the work of an evangelist, make full proof of your ministry. This is one pastor talking to another pastor. This is one father talking to a son in the faith, as I have. And you guys know it. The down is called the downline. And the upline tells the downline what they need to be careful to remember, what they need to be careful to do if they're going to achieve their goal. So now what I want to do with the idea of the evangelist returning to Pilgrim is to actually highlight that event and show you something about the importance of gospel evangelism. So under point number one in our outline, the work of maturing the believer. You guys see that? The work of maturing the believer. The work of maturing the believer. Listen to Colossians chapter one, verse uh, 27. Colossians 1, 27. I'm going to be doing theology and then recalling the narrative for us. For those of you who have been part of it, you'll know it. Immediately as I begin to talk about it, you'll understand different things. Notice what Paul says. This is Paul speaking to the Colossians? And if we were to deal with the opening uh, pronoun here, to whom, to whom uh, God would make known what is the riches of his glory, is speaking to the Gentiles, to whom God would make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among you Gentiles. Here it is. Christ in you, the what? Right. So when a man or woman comes into a saving knowledge of God, it's because the gospel's been presented and Christ now takes residence in the heart, right? You guys know that the preposition is in, the proper noun is Christ, right? Christ in you, the hope of glory. I've talked to you about that before. That is sanctification. You in Christ is justification. Didn't I teach you that? You and I are in Christ when he died for our sins. That's outside of us. That's a work he did that had nothing to do with us. We were in Christ when he died for our sins. I taught you that. But now that gospel is preached and the spirit of God plants Christ in your heart. Now Christ is in you. Right. In justification, we're in Christ. In sanctification, Christ is where? Right. And this is an an extremely important doctrine. And notice what Paul calls it. A mysterion, a mystery. Now, a mystery is not something that is so much of a conundrum that you can't explain it. It's just hard to understand. We can explain it, but not in such a way as to completely divest it of its mystery. How is it that a human being can have God residing in him in a kind of personal level? That is a mystery. In fact, in a lot of ways, it's unbelievable, but it's still factual, right? Um, when you can understand that with God, all things are possible that are within the capacity of God's will. I put that bracket there because, you know, we do theology at the level of logic, right? Not everything is possible with God, but all things are possible within his will, right? God can't lie. That's impossible. God can't fail. That's impossible, right? God won't change because he's immutable. That's impossible. There are a list of things that are impossible because they don't correspond with God's will. But within the category of what God wants to do, all things are what? Right. And so that being the case, it is possible for an infinite, 
almighty, all-present God that fills heaven and earth, sits on the circuit of the universe, encompasses eternity, can also dwell in us. This is, in theology, we call this the locality of God on a visceral or on an experiential level, the locality of God experientially. Locality of God experientially. And when you use what is called locality terms, you are simply using human anthropomorphic ideas about that. Remember what Solomon said? Heaven and earth cannot contain you, O God, much less this temple I just built, much less these physical bodies. And yet the Bible is clear. You and I are the temple of the living God and his spirit dwells in us, right? If that's true, we're dealing with a what? A mystery. And so Christ in you, the hope of glory is a profound experience. And it's necessary to know, as Paul is saying, if Christ is in you, then you have a hope for glory because glory is what he obtained for us, right? Look at verse 28. This is where we're going to get into the teaching. Whom we what? Whom we what? Right. Whom we preach. So it's important for you to know this. Preaching is about a person. It's not about things. Preaching is not about things. Fundamentally, preaching is about a person. We preach Christ. Did that make sense? We preach Christ. Every other adjacent concept or theory or doctrine is really simply a support system to the person who is the center of our theology. When you are a Christian, you are saying that Christ is in you. That is very much what the word Christian means. Christ in you. Well, Christ becomes your identity. Christ becomes your doctrine. Christ becomes your love. Christ becomes what you want to talk about. And so for us, we are preaching a person, are we not? And that's what he's teaching here, whom we preach. And what Paul says here, now, when we preach Jesus, we preach him under three extremely important doctrinal realities. This is what we're about to get in. He said, the first thing is when we preach, we are doing what? Warning every man. That's one category. I want to get into that. We are warning every man. And notice what he goes on to say. We are what? Teaching every man. We're teaching every man. This is what we're about to get into. I'm going to help build these categories for you because they're going to make sense as we talk through why it is that, pil- that, that evangelists had the demeanor and disposition towards Pilgrim the way he did. It doesn't make sense unless we know what the role of the evangelist is. Okay, so notice what it says. We're warning every man and we're teaching every man in all wisdom that we might also do what? Present every man what? Perfect. So the, you see this in your outline. You can look at it in your outline. I'm getting ready to make sense of this. This is called presentation. Presentation time. What is presentation? That's the end game of the evangelist slash mature believer slash minister of the gospel because we conceive of our work as constituting us sharing the gospel with people, like I've shared the gospel with many of you, and so many, thousands, thousands upon thousands, and they've come into a knowledge of Christ. And guess what I know according to my contract with God? I have to present you one day before Christ. I want you to capture that. My job is to present you one day before Christ. 
So what Christ does for me as a minister of the gospel, he presents you to me and puts you in my care. And my God is to present you to him on that last day so that we can have a joyful meeting when you have come into the fullness of your maturity. Did that come? Did that make sense, you guys? He presents you to me when he brings you to me as his servant. My job is to help build you up in the faith. That's what the word perfect means, to mature. Okay, that's teleos. It means to mature. When my job is done, I have to expect to meet my master on the last day with you. The word presence there is paratithemy. You know what that means? That means I'm going to be standing right there on the side of you, with you, when you stand before Jesus, and uh, we're going to have a conversation. And I will be more culpable than you will if I didn't tell you the truth. Because you're his sheep, I'm his sheep, but I'm his servant. Am I making some sense? Yep, so this is the Hebrew writer who makes it clear. Hebrews 13, 7. We'll come back. Hebrews 13, 7. Listen to it. I want the saints to get this. Hebrews 13, 7. Listen to the language. Remember them which have the what over you. Episcopate here is the idea of seeing over the top of you to know the terrain, to know the land, to actually guard you. I, I don't want you thinking of rule in some kind of rigorous, doulos, slavish relationship. Perish the thought. Paul knows better than that. Paul is not using the language of rule as exousia or kratos or despot. Christ is your despot. He's your kratos. He's your exousia. Christ has authority over all of us. But for me to have authority, that authority is derived from God to oversee, to make sure that the landscape is clear so that as sheep, you are safe. Did that make some sense? It's really important to get that. I don't have the right, and we're going to get into this here in a moment, to personally control the way you think. I don't have the right to personally dictate how you feel. I don't get to play with your emotions or your mind or your will or volition as if I am your Lord. Peter put it like this in 1 Peter chapter 5. You shepherds over the sheep, do that with joy as not lording over them, but knowing that you have to give an answer to the chief shepherd on the last day for watching over his flock. Did that make some sense? In a real sense, your chief shepherd is Jesus and I'm just a watchdog for him. I'm a sheepdog. My, my job is to bark when you get out of line and then try to run you back to the middle of the field, okay? Get you back into the fold, okay? You guys know sheepdogs. They know what to do, don't they? Well, I'm a sheepdog, and so is every good pastor, a sheepdog. You should know your job as well, but notice what it says. Remember them which have the rule over you, who have spoken unto you the what? All right, so if that really is truly what's happening in your experience with the shepherd, then you'll be able to say to the Lord Jesus, Lord, you gave me a good under shepherd. Did that make some sense? Notice what else it says. Whose faith, what? The word faith there is not referring to the essentia of doctrine that we hold, but my lifestyle. Follow his lifestyle. Follow his pattern because, again, the gospel is about replication. And replication is all about meeting people who are serious about Christ and then following the pattern of their life. If that makes any sense. You get to watch me. 
You don't get to live with me. I'm sorry. You don't get to live with me. You don't get to be in the closet. You don't get to go in my cabinets and find out what kind of food I eat. And neither do I with you. We are going to quickly clip any notion of a kind of cultic sort of narcissistic domination over your life. I hate cults. I grew up in, in those experiences when I was naive and young. And by the way, that's what worldly wise men wanted to get pilgrim into a cult. How many of you guys know what cults are? Right. Have you have you experienced some of it? Because they are they're all around. Uh, the goal of the Christian is not to bring you into a cultic. Uh, the goal of the minister is not to bring you into a cultic situation. It's to actually help you comprehend the kingdom of God broadly enough so that you sense the personal responsibility of navigating that kingdom in the community of other sheep. The goal of a good teacher, a good pastor is to help you comprehend a sense of the dimensions of the kingdom of God so that you have a kind of working knowledge of what that kingdom of God is at the spiritual level. If the teaching is well, the Holy Ghost opens your eyes and he shows you what the kingdom of light is and what the kingdom of darkness is. And your fundamental mechanism for knowing that is going to be the word of God. We've already learned that. That's why Pilgrim is on a what? Path, on a journey, right? Your word is a lamp unto my feet, a light unto my path. So the word of God is critical to keeping the lights on for you to comprehend the kingdom. Once the Bible's closed, you begin to lose a sense of the reality of the kingdom. And if your mind is largely driven to trying to determine what the sort of structures and frameworks and parameters of the kingdom are, you're going to distort the kingdom because your mind could never, ever keep an accurate assessment of the dimensions of the kingdom or their structures and their parameters without the word of God constantly interfacing with your mind. Am I making some sense? And and more than that, when you become well acquainted and well adjusted biblically, you have a real good sense of the kingdom of God versus the kingdom of the world. And it makes it easier for you not to inadvertently slip into the dark kingdom because you're under the light of the word. That makes sense, right? So that's the role of the pastor. So it says, follow him, considering the end of their lifestyle. That word concern, uh, conversation in the, in the uh, Greek language literally means lifestyle. So avoid the term conversation as if it simply means talk. But you can use the euphemism. People will know you by how you act. Actions in some cases do what? Speak louder than words. In some cases, not all cases, there are a lot of really good hypocrites. And so the next verse I want you to see in line with that is verse 17, Hebrews 13, 17. Notice what it says here in Hebrews 13, 17. Obey them that have the what? The rule of you. So as we get ready to talk about how evangelists handled pilgrim, you can see that evangelists knew what he was doing. Is that right? Evangelists knew that pilgrim was in trouble And he had the right to impose upon Pilgrim several things necessary to course correct him. If your pastors or your teachers don't have that sense of what it means to course correct you, they are not faithful to you still. The reason why is we all err. We all get off the path. 
Did that make some sense? All right. So it's important. Notice what it says. Obey them that have the rule of you and do what to them? Submit yourselves. Did that make some sense? Now, here's the reason why they watch where you're sold. They're not watching your bank account. Hint, hint. They're not watching your real estate. They're not watching your territory. They're not trying to understand what you have or don't have. That is not their domain. You should never let them do that. You are wrong if you do. Did that make some sense? You are wrong if they make you feel like they should have authority over your resources. You're wrong because they shouldn't. Okay, they only have one overseeing authority over one overarching authority to make sure your soul is well. That's all. They're not your Lord. Okay, it's critically important. Sheep often give the hireling pastors way too much of their material. I can tell you that now. Notice, notice what it says, for they watch for your souls as they must what? Remember what I said, paratithemy? Got to show up on the last day. Oh, because such and such a day. Here we go, Lord. I'm hanging out with James. Did that make some sense? I have to give an account and I want to do it with joy and not with what? For that is unprofitable for you. You guys see it? So now, and I'm, I'm not really pressing into the interpretation, but a comfortable reading recognizes that if God gives you a good shepherd, and you're fighting with him all the time and bringing grief to them, then that's why we actually are getting into the study tonight because it, it deals with that and particularly the question around um, uh, backsliding. I'll share with you what that means. And it's not the idea that you have to agree with your pastors or your teachers. That's not the issue. You don't have to agree with them. You just have to agree with God. Now, that might be a wrestling act that takes a while for you to do. But if your if your pastors are faithful and, and properly called, you do need to respect them like kids need to respect their parents. But they don't have to, you know, just ad hoc agree with them. Mom and daddy can be wrong, you know, two or three times in their lifetime. And so can the pastor. So can the pastor. But obedient children are going to respect their parents and are going to walk within the parameters of their authority. Jesus submitted to his parents, did he? Now, you and I know Mary and Joseph weren't perfect. They made it. Can you imagine that? Here you are, a perfect child. I know you should have said, yeah, I can imagine that. (laughs) Here you are, a perfect child, and you got a mom and daddy that's jacked up. Boy, if that's not a trial, right? Having to live with a mom and daddy that's jacked up. So the Lord Jesus, I mean, he was amazing to hang out with a mom and daddy like, like me and Barb. Right. He has to be extremely patient. And so it does not mean that he has to agree. It does not mean you have to agree with me. I should be making you agreeable. I taught you that. That's first uh, Corinthians chapter nine. You and I should be pleasing to all men. The term pleasing means to bring them into a state of agreeableness with you. That's what we mean by winning people. You, You get them to come to understand that what you're saying may be good. It may be well. It may be right. And this is how we all agree with one another. When we say, I enjoy him, I enjoy her, that means we are pleased with them because we have common grounds of agreement. That makes sense, right? And and this is where you and I are really wanting to win people. 
win people to agree with us, but not just to agree with us, but agree with reality, agree with truth, agree with Jesus. Y'all getting what I'm saying? And this is also what should be occurring with one another. Your job with each other as sheep should be developing a kind of relationship across the mutual reciprocal dialogue and interaction where we become agreeable with each other. Can I drill down on that before I go? Right, that's the end game. This is what the Bible means by when it tells you and I to love one another, even as Christ has loved us, right? And operate out of those principles of forgiveness and patience and long suffering and maturity in the faith that allows for dialogues to take place across different positions and different views until we can find a ground of harmony. That means you value the relationship above your position above your points until you can get your points to squeeze together. And if they can't squeeze together, then you get help. I'm making some sense, am I not? Right. Or you learn how to table disagreements for the uh, precedent of the relationship. Can I give you one more caveat around that? Y'all ready? You don't always agree with Jesus. See that? Look what I'm saying. And he puts up with you. He tables a bunch of stuff that he knows you're wrong at. She'll catch up. She'll catch up with me later. He'll catch up with me later. Now, is that not love? Right. And it's the security of the relationship that allows us to love at the level of someone being wrong. And you're just waiting for them to catch up. That's what we have to do. It's what we have to do. For those of you who are married, this is free. I've done this for years. Please understand, your wife is right 50% of the time. It'll come home, won't it? Will it come home? 50% of the time, okay. All right, so it's time to go to work on, on, on the reason why, as we'll get to it, pilgrim, uh, evangelist was so serious. Again, I need to know, did you, are you guys aware of that part of the narrative? Because I'm about to get into it. So now notice again what it says, going back to, first, going back to Colossians 2.18. Because this is in your outline. So I want you to get a feel for what it means to be under comprehensive ministry that covers the basis of our journey where it is needed. Here's what he says in verse 28. Whom we preach. Now, who is it whom? Jesus. Warning every man. You guys see that? That's our first category that proceeds out of our uh, evangelical task. Our evangelical task. And here are the the three sort of uh, principles. Principles that come into play with it. These are principles that you and I want to work through briefly here. This will not be hard. This will not be hard. The first one is warning. The first one is warning. In any relationship where the goal is maturity, with children or with adults, part of the collective uh, mode of communication particularly when you're trying to grow something up safely, is to warn them about parameters and dangers as they mature. 
It does not matter what the relationship is. There are in the liability of growth, a need for you and I to be warned about things that we should not do, should not say, places we should not go, people we should not engage. The relationship with God and his children, this here is to be a nepios or to be a technon or to be um, a huios. These are all children terms. Children are under educational discipline. Are they not? Are you a child of God? Does God have you under educational discipline? Right, so you got to get this. Listen, warnings are the way it works. Your Bible is warning you early on in the scriptures, is it not? I've taught you this before. You can't get, you can't get well into Genesis chapter 2 without God saying, hey, I'm going to put a warning on you. Don't touch that tree. We're not, we're not even in Genesis 3 and God has already put a speed bump down and our parents weren't even sinners. How much more for us, right? And so warning, warning, warning. I want you to comprehend that. It says warning, warning. That is um, a term in the Greek from which we have what we call in council, neuthetics. In Christian council, we do what is called neuthetics. Neuthetic counseling is the idea of using the Bible as the framework for helping Christians work through issues. You guys following me? Y'all keeping up with me? So noose, noose is the root noun for the word, the mind, the mind, the mind. Neuthetics is the idea of addressing the mind because the mind is the area of battle. The mind is the theater of decision-making. The mind is where right and wrong is addressed, the mind. And when we're doing a neuthetic, what we're doing is now trying to educate people around conundrums, around struggles, around difficulties. You're keeping up with me. Okay, so warning is always to the mind, but it has a particular emphasis. And I'm going to talk about that after I come from warning to teaching. You guys see teaching. It's in your outline, right? Because that's the second clause in, first, uh, in Colossians 2.28. Warning every man and then doing what? teaching, warning and teaching. Now, we can easily argue that warning is teaching, but we could also argue that teaching is not necessarily warning. Does that make sense? So even though terms can overlap, they still have distinctive categories that make them different. Didaskalon is our Greek term for teaching, and it is the common term to do what? Teach, educate. Here's the word I want you to get. It's the word inform. Now, I had shared that with you in Matthew 28, verse 19. Go ye therefore into all the world and teach them. This is why the Christian church for 2,000 years has been an educational ministry. I mean, there are variables throughout church history where they threw away the Bible and got caught up in the mysticism. I could deal with all that. But even that was simply a modality of teaching. Because if you are in the Catholic church or in the Greek Orthodox church, they're teaching you through iconography, through images, through uh, paradigms of actions, through the priests walking through and swaying with candles. It's a lot of imagery-oriented teaching. Am I making some sense? So you're being educated still. It's different modalities. When we come into the New Testament, our teaching is much more didactic in the structural, propositional sense as in an education where you're in a classroom being taught different subjects. Does that make sense? 
And we see this emerge prominently as soon as you open the New Testament. As soon as you open the New Testament, John the Baptist is teaching. As soon as you open the New Testament, Jesus is going from synagogue to synagogue to synagogue teaching. He's teaching in the temple. He's teaching in the street. And what he hears from those who adhere to his teachings is Agathos, uh, uh, master, or didaskalon. Agathos, didaskalon, good teacher, good rabbi. What does that mean? They have come up under his educational discipline and teaching, like what I do, right? We're in that mode now, are we not? We're in the mode, I'm the teacher, you're the student. And this is a critical component to actually being conformed to the image of God, to the image of Christ. Christ has to be taught. He has to be communicated to us. God has to be communicated to us on a propositional level because with the mind, we serve God. That's the Bible is clear. You are to love the Lord with all your heart. That is your affections, all your soul. That's your being and conduct and all your mind. And do all of those with all your strength. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Take your mind, take your volition, take your affections, take your body, and you serve God. Until it comes out in the kinetic of an action, we are inhibiting the influence of God in our life. Does that make sense? And when it's done right, that's what it looks like. Jesus. When it's done right, it just looks like Jesus. This is why I'm telling you what evangelism is, is simply grown-up Christianity. It's when, it's when you've been taught enough to where you can't help but being what you are, right? And, and this is where the parent-child relationship comes in at because with a parent-child relationship, we educate them up to a certain point and we back up because our job is done. The rest of it is DNA, culture, right? Nurture, nature. And then we look and we see a composite um, outcome. And when God is in the equation, he can shape us into his image well. I'm glad you got that. So notice he says, whom we preach, warning every man and teaching every man in all wisdom. Paul being a Jew, he would have known that wisdom, Sophia, wisdom, Debar, wisdom would have been God's word. There was no argument about that. He knew that wisdom is Torah, okay? Torah is God revealing to us the way, okay? Ha hadas the way, how we are to walk. That's wisdom. And he told us in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 30, that Jesus is our wisdom. That makes sense to me. If Jesus is the second person of the blessed Godhead, if, if he took on, on a human nature, if he walked this earth in our place, and if the Father was always pleased with him, then he is wisdom personified. And we want to follow him because he know where he going. Right? And so that's important for you to capture. Now, what I want you to capture under... The term teaching, which is the term didaske, and you don't really need to know this, you know, I just help you with Greek grammar from time to time, is that uh, the idea of teaching is to inform. You got that? The idea of warning is to impress. To impress. I want to make that distinction to those that are listening. Can I do that? It's one thing to inform us, another thing to impress. Nuthetics is about pressing hard on the mind, important data, 
that forces the person that hears it to understand that this is serious. See, you can get information from all kinds of different uh, sort of uh, emotional modalities. A person can inform you while they're laughing. You can get informed with jokes. You got all kind of smiling preachers out there, love to inform you, right? You can be informed with all kind of information, but information does not necessarily translate into transformation. Did that make some sense? Right. So like human beings can take data and put it in the executive uh, thinking capacity of the brain as information for the future to to be acted on or not. Like you can be a really good learner and a very bad doer. So I, I just want you to get that. Like you can be really given to education. But you also have this kind of pathological makeup where you do very little of what you know. This is a a kind of weird paradox with some people. And that's because it sits in a part of the brain that does not translate into the frontal lobe where we are dealing with the limbic system that constitutes our concern about the realities of life. I know what I'm talking about, right? I'm talking about when a thing comes to warn you, your limbic system says, this is important enough for me to perk up. This is important enough for me to be concerned. This is important enough for me to fear. Fear is an emotion and it's good when it's employed properly. If the house is burning down and I say, get out, I'm impressing upon you. I said, you know, the house is on fire. And you know what oxygen does when it you know, runs across flames? There is a metabolic process that takes place and things are flaming up. And if, if there are a bunch of combustible stuff around, well, things can get kind of sticky and chaotic. Now, you don't have to be alarmed. I'm just, I'm just informing you that if you sit here long enough, you'll discover that you are a dirtbag too and you will be a combustible thing in a moment and you'll disappear. But that's up to you. I'm out, okay? I'm out. That's... That's information, right? Warning is to impress upon them. This is urgent. This has serious consequences now. And and you and I have to ask the question, do we have the kind of healthy mind that knows how to read information that is a give or take? You can take this or leave it because it's objectively criterium that you can use later for other reasons. When something comes to you that says you need to make a decision now because this actually qualitatively can impact your life if you don't if you don't move on it. I'm making some sense, right? Well, this is exactly what you're getting with evangelists. This is exactly what you're getting with him. Are you not? When evangelist comes back around and 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 pilgrim slash Christian, I'm going to talk about that in a moment, is in the middle of this climb up a mountain. He's on the wrong road. And deep down inside, he, he, he's going, something weird here. This is not right. That mountain is getting big, it's getting heavy, and it feels like it's coming down on his head. He's like in a horror movie. Now, five minutes ago, see, now I'm using a time measure because I could be wrong, because worldly wise men could have had him over his house for three or four days teaching him about how wonderful prosperity preaching is and how wonderful prosperity churches are and how wonderful if you give God 10, he'll give you 100. 
and how beautiful and happy everybody that pay their tithes are. Like people that pay their tithes never have problems. Husband and wife love each other because they pay their tithes. Because what Pilgrim was taught was works religion. And he was taught works religion from a hypocrite of the highest order. And that hypocrite was telling him a lie about the people in the congregation. This is what I told you guys on Wednesday. I told you that congregations that don't make much of Christ must make much of themselves. That's the vacuum when the gospel is not the main thing. Am I making sense? And now what they have to do is put on a form of godliness. Second Timothy chapter three, verse seven. Uh, start at verse five. I'll make my way there. Here it is. Having a what? Form of godliness, but what? Denying the power thereof. And here's the admonition. From such do what? Now, this is really weird. This is super weird because this verse says they have a form of godliness. And what is a form of godliness? The hypocrisy of appearing to be one way in terms of pious and moral and civil. Am I making sense? But look, if you go back to the three verses before that, this is crazy. Look at verse one of chapter three. Look at verse one. This know also that in the latter days, perilous times shall come. Now, I'm not going to extrapolate on that, but I can say that they are here again. They are among us. You and I are living in the collapse of the universe. If you know prophetic formulaic language, the sun goes dark and the moon doesn't give its light and the stars begin to what? And those are all powers, authorities, rulers. So you're seeing the rulers falling everywhere, are you not? Yes, you are. That's the way the prophets spoke about Israel, spoke about Egypt, spoke about Assyria, spoke about Babylon. Babylon is what? Fallen. Because rulers are like celestial authorities. They are supposed to give you light in the way. You and I are called stars, and our job is to shine so that people can navigate the darkness. Is that not true? Right. And our job is to stay in our hemisphere, to operate in our orbit, unless we are a liar. And if we're a liar, then we're a falling star. And we can't give light to people. Now, this call, what I'm sharing with you now requires you to be able to look up and intelligently understand the heavens. Like a lot of us don't. But everybody should know how the heavens work. Because the heavens are light bearers to give us light in the darkness. And if those stars are not in their proper place, the navigational methodology for going here and there gets all out of chaos. This is why we watched the movie Leave the World Behind and understood that once the satellites were knocked out of orbit, all the coordinates were off and everything went chaotic because satellites are artificial light bearers. Y'all keeping up with me? It's important to know. We already know the enemy wants to create his own synthetic world. So in his creating a synthetic world, he wants to appear like he has order. But see, so you're seeing the analogy. So my point is, is that this know also in the last days, latter days, perilous times should come. But Paul was talking about his first generation. The Roman Empire was falling apart just as bad as it's doing today. But we can make application to us today, can we not? Now, let's walk through what the stars falling look like briefly. Notice what verse two says. For men shall be lovers of their own selves. Those are falling stars. 
Y'all got that? Let me see if I can help you just briefly. All of us are supposed to be stars. We're supposed to shine in the darkness. That's what Jesus said. That's what Daniel said. You are like stars that should shine forever. Adam was a star. He was the first star. Was he not? And his sons were to follow him. But him and Eve did what? They became lovers of themselves. Is that good theology? They they abandoned God and they set up their own satellite system. And it went bad from there on out, right? Did it not? For men shall be lovers of themselves. Uh, Psychologically, we call this narcissism. Narcissism. When you have self-love above love for God, you're a narcissist. But it's also idolatry because you're worshiping yourself. That's Romans 1. That's what we'll deal with next week. When they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, but became vain in their imagination. Their foolish hearts were darkened, and they exchanged the glory of God for the glory of man. Four-footed beasts, creeping things, birds of the air. They worshiped the creature instead of the creator. Is that where we are today? Covetous. I've told you that. This, everywhere you go where man leaves off with God, there's a vacuum in his soul. Now he has to practice covetousness. Covetousness is the absence of God's fullness in your life. When God's fullness is in your life, you don't have to covet anything. When God is in you and his fullness is in you, he is sufficient for you to rest and wait on God to be your provider. Jehovah what? Chira. Okay, let me keep going. Covetousness and then bolsters. Ladies and gentlemen, is that not a high moniker in our culture? Boasting is a substitute for the evidence of virtue. Boasting is what hypocrites do to kind of flay you away from looking behind them to see whether or not they actually have the evidence that constitutes who they really are. Why do you have to boast if you know who you are? Why do you have to boast if you know what you have? You don't. You don't. You don't have to boast. Boasting is for shallow minded people that like to be manipulated by rhetoric. This is where Christians are in trouble in the West, too. Christians boast way too much. And they boast about things that are not true. That is what worldly wise man was doing. Was he not boasting about how beautiful the city of morality was? He was lying between his teeth. In lying between his teeth. I mean, that's like you and I saying how impeccably godly all of our presidents have been since George Washington. Right now, we, all of them that's still living was hanging out with Jeffrey Epstein. Right? We're not surprised. We are not surprised. Because we understand the term hypocrisy. So when you put on a form of godliness, you are actually trying to distract people from what you're really doing. I make some sense. Am I making some sense? Let me keep going. Notice what he says. They're bolsters. They're proud. Are they proud? Are they blasphemers? Disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy. Look at verse three. Without natural affection. This is where we are in the whole twisted thing of gender. This is where we are in the whole twisted thing of gender. Without natural affection, truth breakers. Do you know what that is? They don't keep one word they say. Fierce. I can, be, I can go a long time with this. 
But when you see the term fierce, when fierce is the sort of nomenclature or expression of a community of people, it's because they have been politicized. Okay, they've been actuated into a level of politics because politics is hostile. Will you hear me? Politics is hostile. Politics is hostile in the West and in Europe and everywhere. When you have been made to think your whole life is dependent upon your political position, everybody opposite of you, you are fiercely opposing. You don't, you don't have dignity, you don't have decorum, you don't have respect, you don't have a, a recognition of their imago day. you don't care about them actually learning about you, you just want to destroy them. When you are political, you're like the Pharisees who wanted to kill Jesus. I told you there's only two ways for us to go, either political or pious. Jesus was pious, was he not? Now, the disciples wanted to go political because they grew up under that same militant Zionism that we see existing today. But Jesus taught them, no, it's not by the sword. Isn't that what he said? Put your sword up. He that lives by the sword shall what? Whenever you let your identity get wrapped up in politics, you're going to become fierce. Then you're going to be irrational. I'm listening at these fools right now talking about wiping out the Gazans in the name of Jesus. How, how, how paradoxically stupid is that? No one should be wiped out. It does not matter who they are. You don't get to kill human beings because they're not a part of your party. Do you understand that that is sociopathic? You do understand that that's profoundly pathologically sociopathic. And really what John would say in 1 John chapter 4 is there's no way the spirit of God can be in you with that. Because as Cain was a murderer, he was a murderer because the wicked one owned him. That's why he killed his brother Abel. This is why I tell you to be very careful not to plug into politics so deeply as that it becomes your identity because you will give up the Bible. You will give up the gospel. Am I making some sense? You will give it up. Fierce, despisers of those that are what? Boy, I could go a long ways, but that's describing believers. What Paul is saying is you, when you live in a day where things are falling apart and the power dynamics are wrapped up in carnal, unregenerate men, when it's, a, when it's a zero-sum game, when nobody wants to have a good, healthy conversation, when they want to punish you because you hold a different position, this is what we've been seeing ever since COVID, have we not? Erasing people because they don't agree with you. Now, you know what I'm doing right now? You know the method that I'm using? You know the method I'm employing, saints? Nuthetics. Raise your hand if you know it. You, you know it. I'm doing nuthetics. Am I doing nuthetics? Because I could just sit back and say, you know, our world is pretty bad. You know, y'all already know that. The next verse we're going to go to now, let's see here. The next verse, right? I can inform you, but I'm trying to impress you. Impression because there's some things for which we need to be warned because we can be dull of hearing and get used to. I, I grew up in the hood like some of us did. I got used to crying. I got used to people being beat down. You know, I just walked by a brother while he beating down his girl because I didn't have time. I, I got, man, I got to catch the bus. He beating down his girl. Today I would, I would pull over. Am I making some sense? You can be hardened. And that's what Matthew 24, 13 is saying. When iniquity abounds, the hearts of men will wax cold. 
And you and I need our hearts constantly aflame. That's why I can't wait till we get to interpreter's house, because he'll teach us about why you need Jesus to constantly pour the oil of grace on the fire of your soul to keep you human. To keep you human. To keep you human. And, and you know, we know, you know what I'm saying is true. And the worst, the worst pathology is around politicized religion. Would you agree? I don't care what religion it is, Hinduism, Buddhism, any of it. It's all hostile when it gets actuated by politics. That's why we have wars all around the world. Most of our wars are rooted in convictions that are rooted in some stupid position people want to hold. This is insane. Let me keep going. I got a little more to go so we can get into our Q&A. So under our first point, the way we're working through is warning and then teaching and then finally presentation. I've shared that with you, right? Presentation to stand beside. It's a beautiful thing to stand beside. That's something that will occur. A good example of this is in Luke's gospel, chapter 2, 22. I'll let the optic there work and then I'll move on because I definitely want to get into Q&A in about 10 minutes. Notice what it says. And when the days of her purification, according to the law of Moses, were accomplished. Do you know your Bible enough to know who this is talking about? Mary. She had Jesus. And the women in, in, in that biblical day, they had to do purification within 30 days of having the baby because of all of the menstrual stuff. Right. And notice what it says. They brought him to Jerusalem to do what? Present him to the what? They brought him. That's our term, paratithomy. So as they're bringing Jesus, so I'm bringing a lot of people on the last day. I'm joining with them in the presence of the Lord when we have to give an account for our lives. I mean, either it's true or it's not. Either, either it's true or it's not. Now, just one more caveat now going down the road. Some of you won't finish with me. You'll finish with other people. I hope they're good people. I really do. Because you, you can share under shepherds across the totality of your life. Did that make some sense? Like, I know my ministry, I frequently get older people who are about to cross over Jordan and they get to enjoy the gospel and get their theology right here and then they cross over and I get to help them pass over. I'll be the last shepherd and because of that, I'll be able to present them to the Lord if the others were not competent. Did that make some sense? This is how that works. This is how that. So some of the younger people who have been under me or people who have been under me 20 years ago or 30 years ago, they may be under other shepherds. Now, if those shepherds care for their souls, then those shepherds will be able to stand with them on the last day to present them before the Lord. Now, if the shepherds didn't, those people will have to answer for leaving a shepherd that was competent and getting under a shepherd that's not competent, who is not ready to stand with them on that last day. Let me see if I can help you, because this is where I'm pressing home the importance of evangelists. Y'all getting what I mean by the importance of evangelists? Why evangelists dealt with Pilgrim the way he did? John chapter 10, I'm going to see if I can help you comprehend this a little bit, again, under the work of the shepherd. I'm going to start at John chapter 10. I'll start at verse 9. John 10, verse 9. Here's what Jesus says. I am the what? By me, if any man enter in, he shall be saved. He shall go in and out and find pasture. He's using the metaphor of the sheep, right? Because sheep find pasture. Christ is the door into the field. 
Our fold is the grace of God in Jesus, and Jesus is our access into it. Look at verse 10. Look at verse 10. Watch this. The thief comes not but for to what? Steal, kill, and destroy. We've talked about that before, right? Notice what he says. I am come that they might have life and that they might have it more abundantly. What is this subject when Jesus uses that pronoun they? The sheep. The whole 10th chapter is about the sheep. Y'all got that? The whole 10th chapter is about the sheep. Remember, he talks about how the porter opens the door to the shepherd. The good shepherd knows his sheep. He calls them by name. They come out and they follow him. Another they will not follow. All of John 10 is about the shepherd all the way up to verse 30. Y'all, shepherd and sheep. You following me? Watch what he says here in verse 11. Watch this. John 10, 11. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd gives his life for the sheep. You see it? That's Jesus for all of us who are sheep. But it's also Jesus' under-shepherd for the sheep. So I want that to press in. I want that to press in. One is, you know, this is our second week into the new year, and I'm so glad for the class we have here as well as online. You and I would not have the preserved truth of the gospel in the Bible form if it wasn't for faithful shepherds. If it wasn't for faithful men who preserved scripture and protected the record that would be taught from generation to generation, you and I would be in a dark age. Do you understand what I just said? Now, if this is true, guess what happened to those men and women along the way they were killed for what they did? This is called the history and legacy of martyrs. Your Bible is the consequence of faithful shepherds. Did you get that? So the idea that you and I go ho-hum to shepherds means we're dumb sheep. Ridiculously ignorant sheep. If you think that you are solid in Christ and enjoying the blessings of the gospel and it didn't come from a chain of faithful servants, then you're dumb. 1 Timothy chapter um, 2. I'm going to come back here in a second. 1 Timothy chapter 2, I'm just thinking about it now. Listen to verse 1 and 2. Now listen to what he says. I exhort therefore that first of all supplications and prayers be made for... uh, Give me verse 2. Let me see. I don't know if that's what I want. Nope, that's not what I want. So let me see. Oh, okay, let me see. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 1. Let me see if that'll be it. Now, here it is. Now watch verse one and two. Thou therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Jesus Christ. Timothy had a weak temperament. We know that. And Paul had to exhort him to be strong. In fact, his mama named, named him uh, Tim- Timothy. And that's Timorous. It means to be weak. She found him weak in his constitution. And God called him to preach. But God can take weak things and make them strong. Can he not? But he has a very strong upline in Paul, does he not? Now notice what Paul says in verse two. Notice what Paul says. And the things that you have heard of me among many witnesses, the same commit thou to what kind of men? So what is he supposed to do? Pass what he learned on to other men. This here is the chain of commands from Christ to Paul to Timothy on to Athanasius 
to Polycarp, okay, to Irenaeus, to Augustine, and I could go on and on. The church fathers early on, on both sides of the equation, all the way up to the Reformation period with John Knox and John Calvin and Zwingli and Luther and a whole bastion of theologians all the way up to the present time in which we live. The one common denominator with all of them was the word of God. That's why in the Pilgrim Progress, Pilgrim was told, don't lose the scroll. And what we're doing in this hour is all about the scroll, is it not? I'm not just giving you a bunch of talk off the top of my head. I'm in the scroll. And you are too. Now notice, in the things that you've heard of me among many witnesses, the same commit thou to faithful men who shall be able to teach others what? There it is. This is how you get good shepherds after 2,000 years of the church. Faithful men that are still competent and capable because it's a matter of the baton. I don't know anything that I haven't been taught from other rabbis. Did that make some sense? I don't know anything. I've t- I tell the men under men, there's been many of them. I say, hey, you can take everything I have because I took it from somebody else. All right, so don't worry about plagiarism in the gospel, okay? Just give people credit for it. And then you have to tell them, my upline don't even know where he got it from because half the things we know, somebody else has already said. And we're simply adding to what they say. Other men have labored and we have entered into their labors. Does that make some sense? Plus, you and I are not that smart. We're not coming up with a whole bunch of new stuff. Man, I just learned something new. Nobody else has ever thought this. Sure. Go back to John chapter 1, John chapter 10. I want to make sure we look at verse 11, and I want to press something else home to you before we get ready to move into Q&A, if I have your attention. Notice what he says. I'm the good shepherd. The good shepherd gives his life for the sheep. Jesus was serious about that, wasn't he? That wasn't like an option. That was a, that was a resume of a duty that was, that was inviolable. Verse 12, listen to it. But he that is what? He that is a what? Right. So Jesus immediately inserts this low qualitative character who is pretending to be a shepherd. This is a low quality character who's pretending to be a shepherd. Now, notice what he's doing. He's making a categorical distinction between a shepherd and a hireling. Now, the hireling and the shepherd will look just alike. It's just that one has a commitment and the other one doesn't. One has a commitment to the owner of the sheep's sheep as an under-shepherd, and the other one does not care at all about the sheep. All right, here it goes. You need to, we need to walk this out so you can see it. Whose own sheep, they're not. You know what he wakes up saying every day? These ain't my sheep. Why should I care about them? Why should I pray for them? Why should I be concerned whether they're drifting to the left or to the right? Why should I waste time preaching and teaching and warning them and getting them upset with me? See what I'm getting at? Why should I make them feel this way or that way just because they they appear to be erring? He sees the wolf coming and he does what? Now, his job is to be an episcopate. Ladies and gentlemen, please. An episcopate means to oversee. His job is to stand on the top of the hill with his staff and his bowl and his glock 
and his AR-715 and so many other things and watch over the sheep. While they're grazing and enjoying life, he's looking way down the line. And then when he sees his nefarious black ears waking his way through the bushes, he just sets up his AR-15 adjusts his scope. Right? And then the sheep have a, oh, oh, oh. And they all mad because he disturbed them. Pow. Yeah, James said, Shepherd, won't you use a silencer next time? But see, if you and I were to get into the physiological benefits of being warned, your limbic system is healthy when you go through being warned and you, you, can, you can actually once again be reminded that you have enough healthy energy to be ready to do something. See, now all of your uh, hormones are working properly. You have that adrenaline flowing and now you can be much more alert. You're not alert until your adrenaline is flowing because the goal of the world is to put you to sleep to narrow your tunnel vision to where you're myopic. You can't see over here and there's a sheet, a, 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 a wolf right here. There's a wolf right here. And you like this. See, this is where Pilgrim is about to come into once he comes on the other side of the cross. He got three fellas sawing wood, doesn't he? And this is where the narrative wants us to understand the danger of experiencing grace and the liberty of the back pack off of your shoulder and the joy of freedom from the burden of your sins because of the grace that's in Christ, which you will misrepresent and go right to sleep. If God doesn't grace you to realize the back being the pack being removed so that you're no longer walking in condemnation is not for you to go to sleep. It's for you to run even faster to the celestial city. And as you want, run, watch out for people in the way who want to tell you now, 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 there, you can rest now. You can chill. That's going to be a remarkable conversation that we're going to have there because you and I must know that presumptuous and slothful and, and, and the other character really represent attributes in you and me. Don't tell me you're not presumptuous. Don't tell me you're not slothful. Right? These are qualities that we have to deal with. It so if you really want to benefit from the pilgrim's progress, look at these nefarious characters and not only look at them as other people, look at them as psychological maladies also in your own makeup. Remember, the biggest battle is against our carnal nature. Am I making some sense? So you and I are called to fight the good fight of faith, lay hold of eternal life, right? And we have to learn how to mortify the deeds of the body in order that the spirit might walk in the quickening power that it promises when we walk after the spirit and not after the flesh. That makes sense, right? Right. So this is where we are with this. I'm going to stop right here and just make some observations about uh, evangelists. And then we'll pick it up. We'll pick it up in our next study on Tuesday. The first thing evangelists said when Pilgrim saw evangelists coming because Pilgrim was headed to the false church. But because we actually believe in the, uh, the doctrine of irresistible grace, 
right? We do. We also know, therefore, that Pilgrim was being drawn, wasn't he? And because he was being drawn, we believe that he was being what? Kept. That's called preservation of the saints, is it not? This is the theology that we understand. So in the preservation of the saints, what God does is he puts parameters around you as you're going your way. And from time to time, when you're about to get into trouble, he intervenes in your life. So evangelist is now intervening once again because Pilgrim is struggling in in his mind because he's being drawn. And remember, the first work of the spirit is to do what? Convince you of your sin. You are not ready for the gospel until you realize you are a sinner. And so here Pilgrim is toiling because something's happening in him that's telling him this is not the right way to go. Isn't that good? And while he's struggling with whether he should go on to that other church, here comes evangelists. That's beautiful, huh? God knows how to intervene. Y'all know what I'm talking about. (laughs) Give me two more minutes. I really don't like running across the saints out in the streets. Because I don't want to see you in your mess. Lord, just let me let me navigate and I'd rather see you first so I can go the other way. Especially if you're playing games with God. Am I making some sense? And you think that, you know, just because you're not within the four walls of this space, God's not watching you. Now, I'm just here to let you know, saints, y'all, a lot of y'all knew, but I got some sinful saints that go to grace. Okay. They're human just like their pastor. They're human. And, you know, we can see each other in precarious situations. This is what's going on with Pilgrim. Pilgrim sees evangelists coming. Y'all keeping up with me? And you remember what the text says? He got a, he got a certain kind of way, right? Because he knew he wasn't right. This is what I meant by warning, how warning pressed down. And the first thing that evangelist says to him, and I want y'all to get this. Why are you here? Why are you here? See, and weak teachers and false prophets today would find a way to excuse him from being on the wrong road. Because people who are given to your humanness being centered in your emotions rather than in your being created in the Imago Dei, they will feel for you in your trouble rather than help you out of your trouble. Did that make some sense? Please, this is important. We can talk about it. But what I loved about evangelism is he actually knew that Pilgrim was in more danger than Pilgrim could have known himself. What are you doing here? The second thing he said was, you're going the wrong way. How good is that for God to use faithful servants to let you know when they see you clowning, you're going the wrong way? How good is that? See, and if you're a child of God, here's what I already know. You already have this spirit of adoption by which you cry out my father. You can, you can scream and holler and you can talk about how pastor's too loud. He shouldn't have said this, shouldn't have said that. He hurt my feelings. no. I don't care about your feelings when you are going the wrong way. See what I'm getting at? 
Now we're back to newthetics, aren't we? Impressing upon Pilgrim the fact that he needs to turn around now. Because Pilgrim doesn't know even what to do. Isn't it beautiful when you come on a Sunday and you know you jacked up? Can I get somebody to run the mics? I need somebody running the mics. Come on, come on, Giannis. Because my other runners disappeared on me. We'll just do a little conversation and we'll be out of here. You come in on Sunday, your head on backwards. Some of y'all know what I'm talking about. Your head is on backwards. And ain't no way God's going to talk to you. And then from the beginning of the sermon to the end, it's like God sits right next to you in your seat. And for the whole sermon is unpacking everything that then went on in your life for that week. Then you get mad at me like I'm the one doing it. And I'm completely oblivious. I'm happy up here just trying to do my assignment. And the Holy Ghost is moving people over and sitting and whispering in your ear, you're going the wrong way. Right? That's because he loves you. All whom the Lord loves, he chases. All right, I'll take some observations before I do, some, do these three questions and close. Anybody have any observations? Any questions about anything? Any questions about anything? Okay, if you, if you don't, I'm just going to deal with three questions and go home. No questions? They're all scared now, Giannis. Giannis. You, but you see, I told you guys, you can't do this. You got to do that. That's the only way people are going to see. All right, go ahead on. You got to raise your hand if you, if you want to make an observation. See, there you go. Go on, man. Go on, because okay. we, we, we had a good time. Excuse me. So at the beginning when Pilgrim first started out, I'm, I'm of the understanding that we, you can only be drawn unless God draws you, right? So he was reading in the book, right, and was got convinced or convicted, and then he, that's what led him to start out on his journey. Is that correct? So did I misunderstand you when you said Emmanuel started him on his way or was he the one that just put, put him on straight street? Because I'm just trying to understand. And also was the, the book, wait a minute, did Emmanuel just give him a scroll or was it the same? Was it, did he have that at the beginning? So the book was the scroll. Okay. Right. So, so he had that from the beginning. So in other words, it was the word of God that drew, he was drawn through the word of God. He was convicted and he started, even though he didn't have any direction, he knew he had to get out of there. Right. Well, just make the assumption. This is where you're supposed to use sanctified logic. So this is the 18th century. Churches everywhere. Pilgrims just go to church. And the church is where you find out you need a Bible. Right? Generally, as a rule. There weren't movies, weren't TVs. And so he's reading his Bible and his Bible is saying explicitly the wages of sin is death. The soul that sinneth, it shall die. God hates all workers of iniquity. It is appointed unto men once to die and after this the judgment. If you break one commandment of God's law, you've broken all of God's law, right? The law is spiritual, but I am carnal, sold under sin. The good that I do, uh, would do, I do not. And the evil that I would not do, I find myself doing, oh, wretched man that I am. How many Bible verses do I have to give you? You can read your Bible and God can bring you to that burden point. What I don't want you to do is separate the ministry of the word from the ministry of the evangelist. You don't separate that. 
because the evangelist is going to help you on your way to the cross. And that's how God works, okay? Like, like there will be a few people that will argue that somehow they met God all alone, didn't need the evangelist. Well, the evangelist is the reason you have a Bible. So you don't take it, take away. Remember what, what Paul said in Ephesians 4, and Christ gave some to the church, right? Pastors, teachers, prophets, evangelists, and, 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 then, and then missionaries. He gave a, 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 a five-fold ministry, which ended up becoming a four-fold ministry. So these are officers that were used to codify the word of God. So you're really getting it from the minister, but in a community like John Bunyan, they were, this is England. This is, this is the country where the Bible was free at this time in many churches. So you don't get to surmise an idea where you can just have the Bible and make it to, to glory. You cannot. God sends a preacher. This is 1 Corinthians 3. This is John chapter 1. This is Acts chapter 8. Here, uh, the Ethiopian eunuch is headed home reading the scriptures. And God told Philip, go help that man understand what he's reading. You guys remember that? Do you understand what you read? And the Ethiopian said, no, I, how can I unless some man teach me? And right there he began to unpack the scriptures and taught him Christ crucified in Isaiah chapter 53. And that man says, what hinders me from being baptized? That is the order salutis. You need the word of God. You need a teacher explaining it. You need to be pointed to Jesus and the grace of God compels your heart to want to believe on him and want to trust him. And the first act of obedience is baptism. You guys know that. So that's how that worked there in that regard. Who has the mic? Okay, go ahead on, Cindy, so we can keep going. Okay, I have a two-part question. The first one was you said you were going to talk about um, Pilgrim turning into Christian. Right. That name. We're so, going to get that later. Okay. And it's not Pilgrim turning into Christian. Our, but I'll, The name I'll make, change. I'll, I'll, now, I'll make the little caveat now. Okay because I talked about it before. So if you listen carefully to the narrative of the reading, he's called Pilgrim, right. Pilgrim, Pilgrim, Christian, right. Pilgrim, Pilgrim, Christian, Christian, Pilgrim, Pilgrim, Christian. When he gets past the pack on his back, it's Christian. Christian. Got it. And I want to talk about why that's the case, okay? But we'll wait till we get there. Uh, it's very important to, to know that case. And I do have that argument in your outline under point number, uh, uh, point number uh, point number two, and we'll get there on Tuesday, all right? I okay. do have that out, that, that there. And just because people's scratch needs to be itched around, what does it, what's the difference between a pilgrim and a Christian mm-hmm. in that regard? The difference is that there are lots of people who start off professing faith, who don't continue. Mm. And your Bible explicitly will call them believers. Mm. This is John chapter 6. And many who believed on him left off following him when he said, except you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no life in you. And then he gave us the parable in Matthew chapter, uh, Luke chapter eight. And the Bible says, and they believed for a while and then fell away. So they were professing believers and no one would have known any different. Are y'all keeping up with me? No one would have known any different except that over time, they did not what? Persevere, mm-hmm. right? Amen. That's what John 10, 25 through 27 is about. My sheep hear my voice 
and they follow me and I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. Neither shall anyone pluck them out of my hand. My father is greater than I and neither shall anyone pluck them out of his hand. I and my father are one. That's called the doctrine of preservation. I taught you that the other night. So the difference between true sheep and false sheep is that some sheep are professing believers will go for a while until trouble comes and then they'll depart from Jesus. This is why, and I'm glad you asked it so it's being dealt with now. John chapter 8, verse 31, if she pulls it up. Listen carefully to what Jesus says here. This is going to help you. This is also a doctrine that teaches you and me, judge nothing before the time. Because everything will be brought to light when Christ comes. Do you guys know what that means? Like we will be sitting and trying to determine who's saved and who's not. Don't waste your time. Right. Do be concerned when people start and then fall off. Because mm. that's dangerous in terms of the parable of the sword and the sea. Mm-hmm. But hold on. You and I are not God. Mm-hmm. We're not at anybody's finish line. This is why I said with you guys on, on Wednesday, is it possible for pliable and for obstinate to find themselves back on the journey again? Mm-hmm. And the answer is what? Yeah. Right. For such were some of you. Yes. Some of us in this room went through the uh, starts and fits and starts and fits and starts and fits until God really got a hold of you. Am I making, raise your hand so I can help some of these folks. And not everybody did. I didn't. When God got a hold of me, I was already deeply, (laughs) deeply in trouble. And when he let me out, I mean, he literally let me out of jail. <laughs> I'm like, okay, I'm, and my buddies had gotten killed and other buddies are in prison. And fo- I mean, the, the enemy was mowing us down. And I knew that was a life sentence. So he put me on a course, a beeline to ministry, and I'm glad about it. And I watched a lot of people run with me for a while, as I told you, and then fell off. But then I also told you, right now in our church, with all the numbers that we have, I have people who grew up with me, who finally have come into the faith. This is why he that endures to the end, the same shall be saved. Does that make sense? This is the doctrine of the preservation and perseverance of the saints. So while we kind of want to know no doctrinal nuances like, you know, what really constitutes a true believer? Well, ultimately what constitutes the true believer is John 8, 31 and 32. Y'all got that? Do y'all see John 8, 31? Listen carefully to it. Then said Jesus to those Jews, which what? Believed on him. If you continue in my word, then are you my true disciples. That's what the word indeed means. Y'all got that? He made it plain. So what we're discovering is that some people start and some people stop. And if you stop, then it means that you were never really one of his. Now, what that little word is doing for every one of us in the room, y'all ready? You know what that word is doing? It's saying, okay, I don't get to boast as if I'm at the finish line right now because I'm still in the middle of my race. I need to make my calling and election sure. I don't get to act like I'm done and can take off my uniform and put on my Stephanus crown and get on the stage and say, I'm done. You're not done. I'm not done. We're not done until we're done. That way, none of us can boast. Am I making some sense? 
Right. Very good. So that's that's enough there. You got a second one, so I can just keep a going? tiny bit. So so then, um, if the call as a pilgrim Christian is to spread the gospel and be an evangelist, can we, um, whilst being in the Word and studying the scrolls and the Scripture, Holy Spirit will turn on the kind of like help us in that because our heart is wanting to please in that genre or in that assignment when it's time. When you're not feeling led to um, say anything except for just to be, you're, you're still being called to just be in, you know, in the presence and learn the gospel and understand you know, what the Lord is showing you in the word, you'll know because God is very clear and he's, he's God. He's clear, but you're not. I'm going to help you. So okay. you guys already know where she's going. Excellent. He's clear, but we're not. So I want to talk about this just briefly. So we've done this, talked about this many times. To me, witnessing is extremely important. It's extremely important to get. This is what I mean. What I mean about witnessing is important. It's important to know what it means to witness properly. And that's why I was talking earlier about witnessing is not just a perfunctory duty that you practice and then you write off, I went out and witnessed today. That's, that's, not, that's not fundamentally witnessing. Because if it's not rooted in a desire and natural compelling to engage people, in a way in which you are not forcing yourself on them and talking about something they don't want to have a conversation about, you're, you're being disobedient. So I'll help you with that. So when Jesus says, listen, don't ever cast your pearl before swine. Here's what he's saying is don't try to force anything on anybody. Like if people don't want to listen to you, you, you and I are nobody. Secondly, if we actually believe that the Lord is in it, wouldn't you think that if the Lord sent you to somebody, he'd have them ready to listen to you? Yeah. Right. So I just gave you the Ethiopian eunuch. He was ready. And then God sent Philip. See what I'm getting at? Now, Philip didn't say, Lord, I see this black man headed back to Ethiopia. I'm going after him. No, Philip was simply walking in the spirit enjoying Christ and the assignment was given. That makes sense, doesn't it, you guys? Because, like, there's all kind of stuff for us to do just in terms of our everyday responsibilities, our everyday chores, and, and our everyday walk with God. Like, more important, I know this is hard to get, more important than telling, something about, telling someone about Jesus is you talking to him and him talking to you and you enjoying him. There are a lot of people who will substitute personal communion and fellowship with Christ for talking to other people about Christ. Did that make some sense? Right. And that's not cool. It's not cool for you to commend to somebody, somebody you don't spend time talking to. That's not cool. See what I'm getting at? And so a lot of times when Christians do that, when they go out thinking they got to talk about, talk to somebody about Jesus. Then the devil is going to come along with a theologian and tie you into 50 theological knots because you weren't even ready to actually represent the Jesus you said you wanted to talk about. The whole conversation, you going, I don't know. I don't know. 
I don't know. And then he's saying, well, why did you come to me talking to you, talking to me about Jesus? Just say it one more time. I don't know. <laughs> There's nothing greater than being led by the spirit. I'll put one more caveat on it. Can I do that for you? Because this is about grace. This is not about works. You don't want to be motivated by works. You want to be motivated by grace. Because grace works. Work does not work. Grace does, though. And it's a beautiful thing because what will happen is you just enjoying your walk with Jesus, happy to be a sinner saved by grace. You know, you just meditating on the Bible verse and then comes along a situation where this individual is brought, dropped in your lap. And then they will actually open the door of your mouth and ask you a question for which it becomes like drastically impossible not to talk about God. And you go, oh, okay, here we go. I must have an assignment here. And then it becomes easy. And you get to share. And you go, whoa, that's a moment. And that's what we're always looking for. And so from time to time for seasons, God's not going to let you talk to anybody. So what? You're not the only believer on the, on the, on the planet. Please get a hold of yourself, ma'am. You're not the only believer on the planet. Somebody went to that person just 10 minutes before you. That's the reason why you don't have to talk to them. But if God laid them on your heart and didn't open the door for you to talk to them, pray for them. Because one sows another waters and God gives the increase. Y'all do agree with that, right? Is this perspective helping you? Yeah. All right. So somebody else, my sister, Carolina, they'll get you, Lisa. Go on, Carol. Okay. Is it on? Okay. You, you put answer, the mic to you. You can't ask if it's on and then put the mic out there. <laughs> okay. Uh, I, have, I have two, but you kind of answered one of them. Well, then just and, give us one. Okay. Well, I can't. I got to give you both, but here it is. When you talked about when, when uh, pilgrims had strayed away from the path and he was on his way to the mountain... And he was talking about how he was looking up to the mountain and how he began to tremble and he was afraid because he knew he was on the wrong path and he had strayed away. But he wasn't talking about falling off the mountain. He was talking about the mountain falling down on his head. I didn't understand that. That was one. And then the other question, you can ask them both at the same time. And the other one was when he ran into the three characters uh, simple, sloppy, presumptuous. presumptuous. Now, girl, can you wait till we all catch up with you? Oh, okay. Because, uh, you know, we're not even in the gate yet. Caroline is down the line. That girl ready to go. Okay. She enjoying the story. It's good. It is good. It's very good. Yes, but yes. I don't want to cheat until we get there. Okay. You okay? Okay. Now, Mrs. if it's really bothering you, come see me and we can talk. Because I don't okay. want to give it away to these folk. I want them to read the account. Okay. All right. Can we do that? Yeah. All right. So can I share something with you guys about narratives in your Bible, too? And one of the reasons why people can't really understand the apocalypse, they can't understand the book of the Revelation, is because the book of the Revelation is a narrative hyper- symbolic, symbolic, metaphorical book. It's filled with multidimensional statements, pictures, images, icons, 
and concepts that are asymmetrical and not normal. Y'all follow what I just stated there? You can't read the book of the apocalypse and think of it in terms of this first dimension realm in which we're in because things spoken about there are magnified and exaggerated. They're distorted. They're conflated. You got hybrid animals, okay? And then you got um, numbers that are repeated over and over, the number seven, the number 10, the number 12, the number 1,000. You've got strange things happening that cannot be logically adduced when it comes to the stars falling to the ground. You and I know scientifically a star is way too big, right? We, we know that, but they actually fall to the ground. And when they fall to the ground, only one third of the earth is consumed. Those are complex metaphorical languages that you have to enjoy at almost the cartoon level of imagery. How many of you in here enjoy cartoons? I enjoy cartoons. Do you know why? Because cartoons are not reality. Your imagination gets to run. It's only structured in a disciplined manner in the book of Revelation for you and I to be used to, to distortion for the purpose of emphasis. Does that make some sense? Like an angel so tall, he's got his foot on the land and one foot on the sea. Man, that's huge. Now, if anyone in here ever tells me you saw that kind of angel, do you know we got to take you to John George? You know we got to take you to John George. But now if you told me you dreamed it, I totally get it. And so what I'm getting at is what Pilgrim does as he's walking up the hill, and this is called Mount Sinai. That's the mountain that quaked with fire in Exodus 19, of which God said, don't come near because if you do, I will thrust you through and kill you. Even your oxen are not to come through because it represented the law covenant. It represented the law covenant. What that means is you and I that try to get right with God by the works of the law, we're under its curse. So that's what you would have heard when evangelist, when evangelist was correcting him. Why are you here? I did not send you to the law. I sent you to Mount Mount uh, Zion, that's Hebrews chapter 12. You are not come to Mount Sinai, which burned with smoke and thunder and tempest and clouds and dark clouds, but you have come unto Mount Zion, the city of the living God, right? The assembly of just spirits made perfect and to a better high priest with better promises. So where you and I are headed is Zion, not Mount Sinai, because those are two covenants. You guys do know that, right? One is the covenant of works. The other one is the covenant of grace. One has our head, Jesus, who is the greater David, ruling from Zion over all his people. That makes sense, doesn't it? Does that make sense? So what, 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 what our brother Pilgrim was experiencing is what it means to be one of God's elect, where when you go down the wrong path, the Spirit of God is going to convict you. Hey, 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 stop. You're going the wrong way. That makes sense, right? Right? He's convincing him of sin. He's convincing him of sin, but he hasn't locked in that his righteousness is locked into that one path that he went away from. Remember, evangelist is going to reprove him and tell him, you need to hate these three things. And that's what we're going to get into on Tuesday, because the problem with you and me is we'll love Christ and love the gospel, but we'll love the world too. 
But ye who love the Lord, you have to what? According to Psalm 97.10, hate evil. You, you and I have to hate evil. And that means hate evil in ourselves. Not so much other people, but in ourselves. But if we hate it in ourselves, then we're going to really try to help other people to hate it in themselves too. Because the path has to be a path of grace. Did that help? See, what he was sharing was what he was feeling. Like that mountain was betraying him. Like it was about to swallow him up. Yes, indeed. That's what Paul meant when he says, it is evident that by the works of the law, no flesh shall be justified. If we're not justified, it means we're condemned. And what he was feeling was the condemnation of a law demanding him to do something that he could never do on his own. That was God being merciful to him before trapping him in a delusion called works religion, which people are trapped in. That makes sense. All right, one more question. Uh, uh, Lisa and then my brown bro- bro- Okay, I, you three. We'll shut it down here. Um, I, I don't know anything about what you talked about. Uh, well, I don't know very much about anything, but um, when you said that you're, you as a shepherd are going to be there the day when present us to God. What happens with all these preachers that are just off on like one thing, like the dispensational stuff? No, that's, they're just off. So oh, okay. very great question. Very great, great question. So um, I've shared this before and Paul made this important, made this very clear in first Corinthians chapter 13. It's around verse 11 or 12. We all know in part. Nobody you, excuse me, no one you know knows anything perfectly. Y'all cool with that? Except Jesus. Now all the rest of us are fallible men, fallible people. Our job is to be as accurate as we can theologically. Across the panoply of theology from creation to eternity are all kinds of theological categories You guys have been with me in our systematic theology class. They're online. So bibliology is the study of how the scriptures came together. Biblical theology is the study of God's revelation from creation to the end of time. Theology around soteriology is the doctrine of salvation. Soteriology will deal with how God justifies us, how God sanctifies us, and how God glorifies us, okay? And so we have these systems of theology that we can affirm through Scripture, but many Christian communities will teach those same systems slightly or radically differently. Did that make some sense? Slightly or radically differently. We don't all get it as accurate as we should. And to that degree, what Paul talked about in 1 Corinthians 3 was this. Some men labor on the foundation with gold, silver, and precious stones. That means their doctrinal discipline will be rooted more in the solid truths of Scripture so that they last. Other men will labor with wood, hay, and stubble. What that means is they're teaching doctrines that do not take root in the reality of the truth of God's word. They may have temporary benefit like, you know, wood has a temporary benefit. Hay has a temporary benefit. Stubble has a temporary benefit. Problem is, everything has to pass through the fire. 
That's what 1 Corinthians 3 teaches. And every man's work will be tried as to whether it was good or not. So you and I can rightly judge every ministry as to how accurate it is in its maintaining a biblical propriety across several doctrinal disciplines. Am I making some sense? All right. What we cannot, we have then what is called tolerable differences and intolerable differences. What that means is there are some doctrines we can tolerate as being within the pool or scope of orthodoxy. Like uh, one, one can have an argument about what is called the perpetuity of spiritual gifts, whether or not all of the gifts are still operating today, some of the gifts are operating today, or none of the gifts are operating. And so you're going to get some people saying, I think the gift of tongues is still working. That doesn't jeopardize their salvation unless they believe that that gift is relevant to and constituent to their salvation. Like if you say that you're saved because you speak in tongues, now you are in danger of aborting a non-negotiable doctrine. And that is the doctrine of Christ's redemptive work on Calvary, of which you and I don't get to participate. Because now you're adding to what Christ did in terms of him saving you. Does that make sense? Right. And there are churches, obviously, who will just arrogantly say, unless you speak in tongues, you're not saved. Those churches are in danger. Because they're adding to the finished work of Christ. And we've debated with them forever years ago. So I would warn any Christian, just because you speak in tongues, listen, the devil speaks in tongues. You see all these devils speaking in tongues, living like hell. I have met many, many people who have sworn that they grew up under that notion that unless you speak in tongues, you can't be saved. And they spoke in tongues, but they were still trapped by every kind of foul demon and sinful behavior you can imagine. And they knew they weren't regenerate. So just because you can go does not mean that you know the Holy Ghost. Am I making sense? Now, I, I don't care. You can speak in a tongue all you want to. But if you start actually violating God's law around it, because God says, if you're speaking it in the church, you better have someone that can interpret that thing. Other you, otherwise, you keep your mouth shut. So what that regulatory principle does is it says, if you want to play games somehow with the gift and act like you're important because you have the gift, go in your closet, shut the door, talk to God. If you come out among our community and go to speaking in a glossolalia, you better have someone ready to interpret what you just said. That way, both of y'all can go to hell if you're lying. Does that make sense? Right, because out of the mouth of two or three witnesses, let every word be. That's what Paul said. Am I teaching the Bible? I just taught y'all that, right? Let them speak by one or two and let another interpret. So if somebody's going to feel like, I can't help myself, I just got to speak in tongues, well, the prophets, the spirit of the prophet is subject to the prophet. You don't get to just act like you can't help yourself. That becomes another evidence that you're walking carnally instead of spiritually. So now if you're going to boast about a spiritual gift, you should also have the maturity to know how to contain that gift. Am I making sense? Right. So if you come to me and tell me that salvation is partially what Jesus did on the cross, but also it has to do with you receiving him into your life so that if you receive him into your life, then what he did on the cross was efficacious. Now you're adding your works to his work and that now changes the gospel altogether. 
Jesus is an almost savior. But he can't really save you until you accept him into your life. Now you're getting the cart before the horse because we know according to the doctrine of Tulip, you're dead spiritually. He has to save you and then quicken you by his spirit. He has to die for your sins in justification and then the message of the finished work of Christ has to be brought to you. Is that true? The message of the finished work of Christ has to be brought to you. It's not a message that says 98% of it's done. You can make it real and accomplished by accepting Jesus into your heart. That makes you a co-savior. Either Jesus saved you all by yourself or you helped him save you. And that is works religion. So when the gospel comes to you, it comes to you complete. It says Jesus died, Jesus was buried, Jesus rose again, Jesus in glory, Jesus has paid for your sins. And guess what? When you believe on him, we know that that too was a gift of God, right? You and I were dead in trespasses and sins and God quickened us together with Christ. By grace are you saved through faith and that not of yourself is a gift of God. And so the real child of God knows that the only reason I believe on the Lord Jesus is because the spirit of God gave me life and faith. We see it like this in 1 John 5 verse 1. She'll pull it up. Whosoever believeth on the Lord Jesus, that's verse one of John five, is already born of God. Do you see the verse? Do y'all see that verse? Now listen to what he said. Whosoever is believing on the Lord Jesus, present tense, is already, perfect tense, born of God. You know what that means? Believing is an evidence, is not a cause of your salvation. So when the baby comes out breathing and crying, he's not alive because he's breathing and crying. He's breathing and crying because he's alive. I'm making sense. Right. And, And I'm still talking about mysteries here because how God does that with all of us is subtly different. When you are born again and how that begins to manifest itself is unique to God's walk with you. Well, as I said it last week, you don't know the moment you were born again. No longer than you know the moment you were physically born. You didn't have consciousness of your conception in the womb of your mother. By the time you believed the gospel, you were well already born again. That's what the text is saying, is it not? So it's very important for us to know what are called negotiable doctrines and non-negotiable doctrines. Does that make some sense? All right. Does that help, sis? Yeah, you know, you, you my soldier, she's my girl. She's been in the faith about a year and a half. She's ready to chop down everything that don't get it right. We, many of us here at Grace don't happen to believe in premillennial dispensational theology, and I have a whole argument against it. A whole argument against it. It's a Johnny-come-lately doctrine, and it actually has done more harm than good for the most part, as many of us are recognizing today at the higher political levels. Zionism is not a Christian doctrine. But I've been ready to debate that for decades. No one wants to really come and debate premillennial dispensational theology. That doesn't mean that we're not brethren. My my dear brother and sister came in, uh, Didi and uh, and Ricardo, and we were talking about John MacArthur. John MacArthur is one of my patron saints. I grew up under him in his ministry. 
But my eschatology, which is a end-time theology doctrine, that's one of the hardest systems of theology for people to grasp. Mine's a consistent, historic theology that goes back to the beginning of the Reformation. Premillennial dispensationalism is a hybrid that just came up 150 years ago, and it's got a ton of problems in it. I've taught you guys that before. If a man or woman buys into that system, you are restoring the works of the law. You're bringing Judaism back into play. You're establishing the priesthood. You're making Jerusalem, that place in Palestine, the place to go. They're fighting over that land over there. That's not the gospel. Did y'all hear what I just said? They're fighting over their land. That's why Jesus is going to the world. My kingdom is not of this world. It's not a material land we're fighting for. And only carnal people get wrapped up into that. Now, that will come out down the line. And, you know, unfortunately, John, whom I've always loved because he's always stood for sound doctrine way, way back. And we fought battles together around, you know, feminism and, 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 you know, all kinds of stuff. But on this one, he grew up in an era where that was a stock and trade doctrine and he just didn't discern it. Well, we all got doctrines that we don't discern because they just come in the package. Does that make sense? Yeah. All right. So, um, I, but John is a hero. He, nothing's going to be taken away from him because he's done so much for the kingdom. So know that. Just when he's, when he's on that old stupid stuff and it sounds like a scratch on the chalkboard, yeah. just go, ah, bless you, John. Bless you. Or me. When you hear me say something you like, don't like, just go bless you. <laughs> All right, we got we to gotta wind this down. I'm supposed to be done at nine. Briante. So I'm just going to yield the floor because I'm, I'm believing the way the Spirit is speaking through you. So I just receive everything you said, and I'm, I'm going to keep it pushing. I'm going to shut up and listen. For sure? All right. Then here's my final sister. You got the mic, right? Do you have the mic? Oh, sorry. <laughs> sorry about that. Okay. Um, I think I have some of my steps wrong. Mm-hmm. My kids and I have had this discussion about regeneration. And the way I've described my experience to them, I might have been incorrect now looking at this scripture. I felt like when I went through that period of pilgrim Christian, pilgrim Christian, mm-hmm. and finally met an evangelist mm-hmm. that was sound, mm-hmm. that I lost that burden and fell in love with with Christ. I thought that was the moment of regeneration Mm -hmm. because after that, I let go a lot of the worldly things that I was participating in and no longer had a desire to do those things because it wouldn't be pleasing to God, right? Did any of that stuff come back? None of, uh, one thing, yes. Only one? Yes. You see what I'm doing? I'm nudging her. Yeah. Only one. How about five? No, no, no. I left. Okay. So let I me help. Let me help. Let me help was, you overcome a yeah. trap that you're getting ready. She's getting ready to fall into a trap, and we can all be careful of it. This is why I, I carefully address the issue of how, in our journey, early on, it's nuanced and different for all of us with the Pilgrim's Progress. Now, what John intends for us to understand is the application of Christ's death on the cross as the good news that ultimately penetrates our soul and liberates us from the fundamental bondage of our sin that weighs us down in the area of guilt and condemnation. 
That is a moment of radical freedom that Paul talks about in Romans chapter 8, verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation to them that are in Christ Jesus. Y'all know that? You also know that you could have heard the basic gospel over and over and over and over again without that burden being removed. So there comes a time when that punctiliar event occurs where there's freedom from that burden that does not necessarily mean that was the moment you were born again. Do you guys follow that? You need to be very careful because if, what if, so like what if you didn't, because this is having grown up in the church again, not everybody has that radical punctiliar moment. There will be people who will say, you know, I just gradually developed into a love for God. I always knew I was a sinner. And I always knew that it was God's grace that would that would bring me out. And I always knew that Christ died for my sins. Y'all got that? Right. So everybody is negotiating that event slightly differently in terms of its impact, in terms of its intensity, in terms of the moment. And ladies and gentlemen, listen carefully. This is why you want to be careful not to package your conversion and give it to somebody else, because that was a conversion. But we don't know when the rebirth occurred that brought you to that conversion. Y'all keeping up with me? Right. So a lot of times is what we were talking about, prevenient grace. What God will often do for you before he brings you to that place of liberating you. What kind of parents he raised you up under, what kind of environment you were in, what kind of resources predicated your journey. A lot of times uh, Christians will grow up in really good homes where resources are already there. They're hearing the word of God from a little child. i got eight kids, as you guys know. I know more than half of them are actually true believers, but they, not, they didn't all come running talking about on a day when they were absolutely crushed in their sin and they needed to make a decision for Jesus. No, it was just over time they came to realize that the gospel is true. I am a sinner. I am ready now to be baptized. Did that make some sense? This is really true for what we call covenant children, children who grow up under the gospel. Now, children who didn't grow up under the gospel like me, we will have a kind of Pauline experience where the Lord knocks us down on the Damascus Road and we we straight hell bound sinners, straight, straight hell bound sinners. And he grabs us by the back. But he used my wife. I told you that he used my girlfriend for like several months. She had no business with me, Adrian. She had no business. I'm talking about the woman married to me 42 years. She shouldn't even been looking my way. You know, God works strange. Does he work strange or what? It's all a miracle. But, she, you know, we would be high as Cheech and Chong. And I would say, Bob, read me the Bible. How the Holy Ghost work? Right? We sitting out in front of her. We sitting out in front of her house. And I'm, because, you know, only time I heard the Bible was when my grandmother read it to me back in Texas. Because I grew up in the hood, the jungle. It was warfare every day. Some of us just surviving. I'm telling you, this was the era when I was slanging dope big time and we were gangbanging. Okay, please understand, people fall into the left and to the right. This was, you know, this is Felix Mitchell era. This is, this is notorious criminal time for those of us. I was in the junior gangs, okay, me and my boys. We had, we had trunks full of weapons. 
I'm just letting you know how it goes. This, this fine little chick, you know, started running with a brother from the other side of my life because I was a geek. I, you know, I could be a comic hero. I really could have been a comic because I was an educated geek. Loved education. Loved hustling. I had a little regular job on the side. My main job was slinging dope, but I had a job on the side. <laughs> and, and doing martial arts. And you know, it's a, it's a complicated story. Does anybody understand complicated stories? And God in this providence brought this cute little old Christian girl. She ain't had no business with me. No business. But she hung out because I could teach her how to fight. She lived up in the hills. She wanted her brother to teach her how to fight. So I'll teach her how to fight. She got to read that Bible to me. Isn't that weird? Smoke that weed and then your mind open and say, show me something about Jesus. No, just, just stay with me, see, because some of y'all could not, uh, some of y'all could never write this kind of story because you're too holy. You're too holy to write this kind of story. See, the gospel that we preach is for sinners. Haven't we said that before? That's where Jesus goes. Jesus goes to Palestine. Bethlehem was for sinners. Samaria was for sinners. Galilee was for sinners. That's why they hated him. And I'm just saying, that's where the Holy Ghost goes. He goes to broken people, right? And he's an artist. He knows how to work with what you got. This is why you as parents got to be very careful with your kids. Very careful. The Holy Ghost can go places that you can't go. I know that's tough. All I have is my record as a believer for 40 years of preaching the gospel in the Bay Area and around the world that God changed my life and gave me light and understanding of God's word. I have eight kids. They haven't acted a real fool because they were taught the truth. They lived a totally different life than I did. Now I'm trying to get my grandkids kids to understand. You don't have to go through the crazy that me and some of my other brothers and sisters went through. But they may have to go through it. And if they do, I am not going to be surprised if that's the way God must take them to break them, to bring them to Christ. Right? The son of man came to save sinners, not the righteous, not the righteous. And I'm not telling you to glorify sin. I'm telling you to glorify God who came for sinners. And, and there's going to be a nuance to your story, isn't it? And your, your story has to be true, one. Your story has to be true. And then it has to be believable which are two sides of the same coin. Like you can't lie about your walk. You can't tell people that you were the best thing since sliced bread because 90% of us are not. If God only saves people that are 90%, you know, like sliced bread, then the rest of us have no hope. But if he can save people like you and me and use us and all of these weird obtuse experiences that we have, and, and then begin to put us on a straight and narrow path of a love for Christ, then people who are way out there in these bizarre twilight zones, they can be saved too. I can tell you a message like this, like all this we did tonight, we've been here long, it's time for y'all to go home. All this we did tonight, this part is the part that will reach somebody in prison. Somebody in John George, a brother and sister on the street. This part we're talking about. 
Because the gospel properly taught is a sinner's gospel. And we don't get to pretend what that is. Sin is ugly. And it's weird. And it's freaky. And, and grace can overcome it. Y'all do believe that, right? That's why as we continue walking, but see, and you know the challenges, once we get saved, we, we start having a real bizarre relationship with sin and we can no longer help people. Don't, don't, don't let God, ask God not to let you become a Pharisee. Don't become a Pharisee. Don't become a Pharisee. A Pharisee can't help a sinner. Ask God to make you a Samaritan. Let me pray. Father, thank you for your mercy. Thank you for your kindness. We're getting ready to go our way, Lord, and I'm asking that you give us all traveling mercies and uh, prepare us for worship on Sunday and then prepare us for class on Tuesday and Wednesday. We love you because you first loved us. This we are praying for us, our families, our kids, our grandkids, our great-grandkids, our nieces, our nephews, our brothers, our sisters. They need you, Lord, and we need you. And this we put in your care in Jesus' name. Amen.